you, first of all, the boxes for Jim Meyer's ministry are out in the fellowship hall, number one. Number two, we have, um, uh, we're, we're redoing and updating our uh, email emergency call list, all that information, so you need to check the list, make sure we have your name, uh, phone number, home phone, cell phone, uh, preferred phone, email, uh, whatever, so we can contact you in case of uh, uh, some necessity. Thank you. Jeff. Jeff brought that up. Uh, Bryce Birch was here last last week. Some of you saw him, some of you didn't, some of you don't know who he is. He's the webmaster for Dean Bible Ministries and also uh, vice president for Dean Bible Ministries and former deacon up at uh, Preston, Preston City Bible Church. Well, he may be back on the board now. I don't know. But anyway, he was here, but he was also the sort of uh, construction foreman for building that uh, chapel that... Uh, we did for Camp Arete, prayed about and everything, gave me a, a little more of a report on that, and I looked at more stuff because I was right in the middle of all those Israel trips, and I was not focused on that at all. But that, that was just fabulous, and the impact that these things have and that the camp has had is in, in, in churches across the board because there were, I don't know, Jeff, how many different churches were represented? Because they had over 50 kids there, 54, I think. Eleven different churches, and at the at the chapel, chapel raising, six different churches. This is this has a tremendous uh, lot lot of uh, good unintended uh, consequences because it, it develops lots of good relationships between uh, these different congregations. And it's, that's that's very good, and it has that same impact with the kids because the kids go and they realize that if they're somewhere and they're in a smaller church and there's five teenagers there or three teenagers there, they go someplace and all of a sudden there's 50 or 60 kids there that all believe the same thing, and that encourages them. And the same thing happens with the adults, and a lot of adults come out for something like that 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 may not uh, be showing up very regularly for for their local church, and all of a sudden they sort of get to know everybody, and next thing you know, they're coming to Bible class all the time. And I've heard several reports to that effect. So these these kinds of things are are very significant, very important, because it gives the you know body of Christ opportunity to get together and to know each other. Speaking of which, we're going to have an event of that kind coming up in mid-October. Uh, we'll have a, we haven't set the date yet, but it will be either the second or third uh, weekend in October for the our uh, annual fall picnic. So you can just start penciling that in on your calendar. And I, Deacon's meet uh, Saturday morning. We'll probably settle the date then. So right, Alan. So that will um, then we'll announce that. So that will be good. But those things are good because it gives us a chance to 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 uh, uh, meet one another. So that was uh, and they're planning for the camp next year and. Um, for some reason, they decided to ask me to come and speak next year, so I'll be teaching the spiritual life for the uh, kids next year. So you can start praying for that. One other thing that you can pray for, I'll go ahead and announce this. On Saturday morning, November the 10th, the Center for Terrorism Law at St. Mary's Law School in San Antonio is hosting a seminar on radical Islam. They're going to have a rabbi, an imam, and a pastor speak about radical Islam. I have been invited to be the Christian pastor 
who will speak on radical Islam. So you can begin, to, you can begin praying for me in about three seconds when we bow our heads. So <clears throat> we will, uh, they probably haven't heard anything quite like that before. So we're uh, in the middle of preparation. Okay, we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we can come to you that we know that you are in control of all things, that everything is under your will, either your sovereign decreed will or your uh, permissive will, and that you control history, and you are working out your will in history. Yet we know that you do this in such a way that, is, that it does not uh, override uh, human volition in the sense that uh, you make the decisions for us, but you cause and work within the me- various means to bring about that which you have, uh, have decreed. Now, Father, as we come together this evening, we face many challenges in this nation. We face a number of challenges from our um, political leadership, both at the local as well as the state and federal level. And this being an election year, it's all being coming together, and many, many things are happening. And we pray that you would, as you oversee this, we pray that we would have men and women elected to public office that would understand the reality of the situation and would continue to preserve our liberties as set forth in our Constitution. Father, we pray for pastors, we pray for seminaries and seminary professors and leaders within the Christian church that they might have a clarity of uh, communication as they address these issues from the pulpit, from biblical truth, and that you would also make it clear in the minds of hearers, uh, those who seek to destroy this nation, those who seek to weaken the foundations of this nation, and those who have departed from biblical truth. Father, we pray tonight as we study your word that we might uh, understand the things that the Apostle Paul teaches in this fabulous chapter of Romans 6 and this section of Romans and that we might come to an understanding and greater conviction of just exactly what you have uh, taught and revealed to us here that it might give us a fresh perspective and uh, sort of refocus us on our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I want to go back <clears throat> to what we've covered the last few weeks and do just a little bit of review because I hit some of the sections last week at the uh, at the end related to understanding some of the technicalities in the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And I got a couple of questions and a couple of email questions, and I realized that that I, that that just as I'm extremely challenged by numbers. There are many people in the congregation that are equally challenged by grammar. And so when I start talking about uh, datives and instrumental cases and subjects and objects and all of these other things, their eyes glaze over and they get lost. And this is, this is very important for understanding Scripture. Now, the foundation for understanding the spiritual life, and I really don't think that we can per- go very far in understanding Scripture related to the spiritual life or understanding our own spiritual life and the dynamics of it if we don't come to grips with understanding 
the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And this is one of those doctrines that because of the influence of holiness, theology, holiness, the holiness movement, the late 19th century and the Pentecostal movement and the combination of the two and its, uh, and it, its evolution into the charismatic movement and various other ics, and spasms during the uh, latter part of the 20th century, uh, this is something that's very confusing for a lot of Christians, and they've heard a, a lot of different different things. I had a I had a lady in my congregation in 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 Preston City, who's on on one side of her family they came out of a Quaker background for two or three or four generations, and if you don't know anything about the Quakers, Quakers believe in in an inner light. They're they're very mystical. God speaks to you, and there's this inner light. And when you're really close to God, you're going to have a religious experience. You would quake. Quaking is different from shaking. The shaky, the ones who shook were shakers. The ones who quaked were Quakers. I don't know the difference between a shake and a quake, but they did. So one line came from the Quakers. The other line traced its lineage back actually to Azusa Street, the church at Azusa Street in California in Los Angeles, where the modern tongues movement really took root and exploded in about 1905. And so all of her life growing up with these two frameworks for understanding anything the Bible said about the Holy Spirit or the spiritual life was part of her baggage. And then she shows up at, uh, she and her husband showed up at Preston City Bible Church. And she had the hardest time taking what was taught from the pulpit and understanding it because of all of this prior confusion that was in her soul. And and even to this day, she's extremely confused. But that happens. You never know who walks in off the street, comes to West Houston Bible Church or any other church that comes with this kind of, of baggage and background, and they've just heard different things. Even if you listen to KHCB today, there was a time when KHCB, like Dallas Seminary, had a... Um, a theological platform that was pretty consistent. Everybody on there pretty much said the same thing. There's, they're closer, a lot closer than in, in most ways still, but there's a few variants out there, a few pastors who have a little bit different view. And so even people within a general Bible church, uh, doctrinal church background, if you listen to some of these other sources, you've heard different things. You grew up in a Baptist church or something that's close, you just can get different ideas and so it can get confusing. And the background is stated here in these first four verses. This is a foundation. Understand this, the, re- the next two chapters will, will fall out pretty easily. Paul asks the two, two rhetorical questions at the beginning that focus the topic. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? that grace might increase. That's the topic. What is the believer's relationship to sin now that he's justified? And he answers this with two rhetorical questions in verse 2, certainly not. Our one rhetorical question, how shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Now the question then is, what in the world does he mean that we're dead to sin? Because in one sense, if you just take that terminology dead to sin like we would in in almost everyday conversation it would imply that sin is no longer existent because that is one of the meanings of death something doesn't exist anymore 
And so there have been those over the history of Christianity who have taken this to be uh, a statement that sin's gone. And this leads into a view called perfectionism. You may have some residual sin, but you too can reach a higher plane of spirituality where there's no sin. So he focused, that's what chapter 6 is all about. It's what is your relationship to sin? Then we have to answer the question, which I will tonight, what does he mean by sin? He lays the foundation in verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. And I pointed out as we've approached this and the topic of baptism of the Holy Spirit, the last two lessons, that this is foundational here. And baptism has a literal meaning in terms of immersion into something and in terms of a, the, the literal act of baptism, water baptism was a physical immersion into the water, but it had a, a, a connotation or a figurative sense of identification with something as you were entering into something new, a, a, a new state or new status. Now, this is clearly the baptism by the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about water baptism here, but it's talking about a, a spiritual transaction, a spiritual change that takes place that's non-experiential. We don't feel anything, but it happens to every believer at the instant of salvation. But in understanding this term, baptism with the Spirit, baptism by the Spirit, as I pointed out last time, in the Greek, those two English phrases, with the Spirit and by the Spirit, translate the same identical Greek phrase, in pneumati. And in the Greek, it's very clear that this is an instrumental meaning. It's used in Matthew 3.11 to me when, when John the Baptist say, I baptize you with water using the instrument of water, but the one who comes after me will baptize you with, that is by means of or with the instrumentality of the Spirit and fire. Now, in that sentence, the one who comes after me, he will baptize you with the Spirit. Who performs the action there? Who does the baptizing? It's Jesus. Who? Do, what's the role of the Spirit? The Spirit in that passage is the instrument that Christ uses to perform that baptism. But when we get over into 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we read for by one spirit, not with one spirit, like you have in Matthew 3.11, but by one spirit. So the English uses a different preposition, which caused non-Greek, uh, uh, non-Greek knowing pastors to think these were two different baptisms by the Holy Spirit. One was with, one was by. One is at, at salvation, the other is, um, is after salvation. And so because of a misunderstanding of Greek, you end up with two different baptisms. And it looked like in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when it said, for by one spirit we were baptized, it looks like the one who does the baptizing work there is the Holy Spirit, that he, the spirit baptizes. And you've all heard people say that, that the spirit baptizes us into Christ. Now, in English... I'm going to go back to my grammar example here. 
when we have a an English sentence, John hit the ball, hit is an active voice verb. And the subject performs the action, and the ball receives the action. And he uses a bat to make the action happen, just as John used water to make baptism happen, and Jesus uses the Spirit to make baptism happen. We call that, that's an active voice sentence. But when we shift to a passive verb here, where the ball was hit by the bat, or or the ball was hit with the bat, John's not mentioned. But John's still doing the hitting. The ball receives the action of the hitting, but grammatically it's the subject. And it's hit with or, or, or by the bat. In English... Let me skip over this other slide here. When in English, now in this sentence, I've put John in there. In English, we express the person who performs the action with the preposition by. So in 1 Corinthians 11.13, when it says, for by one spirit, English grammar makes it look like the spirit's the one who's doing the baptism because it's, not, it's a passive voice construction. The trouble is, in Greek, Greek uses, um, Greek uses a different preposition. Greek uses the preposition hupa to indicate the one who performs the action. And hupa is not used with relation to the spirit in that passage. So it's very clear in Greek that the one who performs the action is going to be designated not by that preposition in, because that still designates the instrument, but by the preposition hupa. And since Jesus, the one who performs the action in Matthew 3.11, isn't mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12.13, what we see here is that, that it's simply a statement that we're all baptized by means of the Spirit, and John's focusing just on the baptism by, the, by means of the Spirit, and he's not talking about who is doing it. And we find that in some of the other places where baptism is mentioned, where not every element of this sort of a formula is used. So it becomes very clear that Paul uses the terminology in the same way that that John the Baptist did in Matthew 3.11 and in the other Gospels and that Jesus did in Acts 1.5. And and Paul uses it the same way when he talks about the baptism by Moses in in 1 Corinthians 10.2. And so all of this fits together. God is, and the Holy Spirit is consistent in his utilization of language. So the way I try to always articulate this so it's more precise is that Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit doesn't act autonomously. The Holy Spirit is an instrument for bringing us into that new life. And part of the, the the symbolic function of baptism, because you're going into water, it's a picture of cleansing. And so what the Holy Spirit is doing, and this is in conjunction with justification, regeneration, and, and, and redemption, and all of the things that happen at the instant of salvation, is we're becoming positionally cleansed at that instant of identification with Christ, 
so that we are positionally cleansed of sin, and that relates to the phrase that we are dead to sin, and that power is broken. So I hope that explanation again, um, somewhere along the line, I, I heard that geniuses need to hear things repeated about uh, eight times, and the rest of it are, are twenty. Yeah, the rest of us need to hear twenty-five times. So I'm hoping that uh, eventually uh, we'll all kind of wake up and go, oh, that's what that means. And every now and then I get an email from somebody and said, okay, I've heard this now ten times. I finally get it. That's okay. Many times that has happened to me. All right. So let's go back into into the passage. Romans 6. Romans 6 focuses on the believer's relationship to sin. Now, I know this is old hat to most of you, but this is, this is, this, there are going to be things that I say here, and there are things that Paul says here that, that I think really we need to hear and be reminded of day in and day out. And the basic message that Paul is saying here is that we died to sin. However you want to understand that term death, and I'll clarify that in a minute, there is a monumental significant break that occurs at that instant of salvation in terms of our relationship to sin. However we were related to sin before we were saved, we're not ever to relate to sin in the same way again. Now, that's hard for some of us to really get a handle on experientially because if you're like me and you got saved when you were six years old, you really weren't getting out and sinning just a whole lot. But that came later because we still do have a a sin nature. Now, when Paul addresses this, he raises the issue in verse 1, and he says, what shall we say then? And, And this captures the whole theme, really, of chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the question he's asking is, should a believer continue to sin? And what he means by that, and by the way he phrases that, is should believers have a somewhat cavalier, licentious, or permissive attitude towards sin in their own life? Just because it's taken care of by grace, just because you confess your sin, should you therefore minimize the significance of the struggle with sin in your own life? Because the reality that Paul's painting here is we have a moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour, day-by-day struggle with sin every single day. That's not something to get to go all legalistic about, but it is something that we have to pay attention to seriously because of what happened at the cross. And if the more we understand what happens with that that act of baptism where we are identified with the death of Christ, which, which makes us dead to the sin nature, that's the, that's the foundation. Now, what we have to do here, and just in terms of moving forward, is we need to look at some, ter- some various terms that come up in here. And one of the things we have to do is look at this translation in verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. Now, what does that mean, in sin? Now, in in the Greek text, it's really interesting that there's no preposition there. One might expect a preposition for clarity, but all we have is the noun for sin with the the definite article indicating 
and it's in the dative voice. Now, the dative voice has the same ending as you, you have the dative voice and you have the, the locative voice. I mean, excuse me, the dative case, locative case. And they're really uh, an instrumental case. They're really all describing the same grammatical ending. It's just the grammar- grammarians of, of the old school would, uh, would break out these identifications as separate grammatical tags, but it's the same ending. So a locative ending, a dative ending, an instrumental ending, they, they, they all look the same. Basically, the exegete has to make a decision which one of those three broad categories it is, and then each one of those broad categories has anywhere from three or four to seven or eight subcategories. And you can't look at the text and say, on the basis of an objective word ending, what that is. But you can, you, you do what I call sort of uh, hypothesize with the text to see what, what areas work or don't work. And when you look at this, if you were to take this as a locative ending, and locative means location, so sometimes it's referred to as a dative of sphere, you could translate it, should we continue in the realm of sin or in the sphere of sin? And that might work. If we're talking about positional, though, we're positionally outside of the realm of sin, We're not in darkness anymore, as Paul said. We're children of light, but we are to walk as children of light. So there's that distinction there as to whether you're talking about, if you go with a locative option, whether it's positional or or experiential. Then the other option is instrumental. And then it would be translated, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to live? That's sort of the understood statement there. Should we continue to live by means of sin? And I think both of them are getting close to the idea, and I think we can capture it without slicing the grammatical baloney too thin by saying basically the idea here is that Paul is saying, are we to continue a lifestyle that is characterized by our sin nature in order that sin might might abound? And the answer is resoundingly not at all. We are not to continue to live our life with the manifestations of the sin nature. Now, most of us are saying, wait a minute. I don't know about your sin nature, but my sin nature is pretty active. And I don't know how I can ever live my life apart from especially certain sins that seem to be my area of weakness. And and I don't seem to ever have any control over that. Well, Paul doesn't seem to make any exceptions here. Now, when he mentions this about sin... There's a couple of things we ought to identify here because this isn't the only place Paul talks about it this way. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Now, that is a radical statement because what he is saying is on the basis of that crucifixion with Christ, and what's that? That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been studying. On the basis of this crucifixion with Christ that took place at the instant I was saved, I don't live anymore. It's not about me. It's all about Christ. It's not about what I want. It's not what I, it's not about what I don't get. It's not about getting my way or not getting my way. It's, it's all about Christ. And he says, I don't live anymore. It's Christ who lives in me. 
That's the, that's here moving into a fellowship aspect. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh. Now there he's using flesh, not as sin nature, but in, in, in this mortal body. And I don't think we can exclude the overtones of the sin nature in fallen flesh, because we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15 later on, and the flesh is corrupt. And as long as we're living in the flesh, we're always going to have that struggle. Struggle, But he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I think he's primarily just talking about in this mortal body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, he's not talking about uh, justification there. He's not talking about the fact that i got eternal life. He's talking about phase two living. He's talking about living on the basis of the faith rest drill. And he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the foundation. But he's not, in this section of Galatians, he's, he's transitioning from justification to sanctification already. In Galatians 5.24, he says, and those who are Christ's. Now, that's any person who's trusted in Christ. If, you have, if you're a believer in Christ, you are Christ's. You are owned by Christ. Christ lives in you. Paul just said, you're owned and operated by Jesus Christ. Sometimes you, re- and I resist that, but that's the idea. We are Christ, and it says, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who've been crucified don't crawl down off the cross and walk away. This is a clear statement that this, the sin nature, the flesh, here he's using the flesh clearly with the sense of the sin nature, with its passions and desires, is dead. Once again, what does he mean by it's dead? And then in Galatians 6, 14, by the way, Galatians was the first epistle that Paul wrote. It's not the first epistle in the New Testament. James was the first epistle in the New Testament. But Galatians is the first epistle that Paul wrote. And in many ways, Galatians is, is, the, is sort of the baby version of Romans. So if you, if you have trouble working your way through Romans, go through Galatians. Galatians is sort of foundational to understanding the more uh, sophisticated, developed doctrines in Romans. In Galatians 6.14, God, he says, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So now he's saying not only am I dead to the sin nature, I'm dead to the world. But we have to make that a reality. But that's what happens at the cross. There's this death thing that happens that we have to understand. So I've got about seven or eight points here in just summarizing what Paul says about sin in Romans 6. I think one of the first things that's really important for us to understand is what he means by sin. The, the noun sin is used 25 times in Romans 6, 7, and 8. It's the word hamartia, which has the idea of missing the mark. He doesn't use any synonyms. He's using the word sin. It's used 25 times in Romans 6, 7, and 8. I think the last time he uses it is around Romans 8, 11 or so. The verb, though, and this is where grammar is very important here. The verb is used one time in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. And in Romans 6, 15, we read uh, Paul saying, what, what, what then? Shall we sin? That's a verb. Now, there he's talking about committing acts of sin. But all of the other places where the noun is used in those 25 other times, it's 
used to refer to this this sinful nature, or what I'm going to refer to as a sinful disposition. That's what we mean by by nature. It always surprises some, uh, and it surprised me too. Uh, students, when they go to seminary, as academicians have to debate over all kinds of minutia, and they debate over this meaning of the word nature because there's certain words in English that have odd connotations with them, and so people will debate over a word when it means one thing in some places and another thing in another, and they get all wrapped around the axle instead of getting to the point. But in terms of this passage, what we're talking about by sin nature is a constitutional defect that entered into human nature of every single person the instant Adam disobeyed God. And it had a corrupting effect throughout his entire spiritual or let me rephrase that, throughout his entire immaterial and material nature. So that the result of it is that he's just totally separated from God, and that state is called spiritual death. Paul refers to that in Ephesians 2.1, you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. We're born physically alive, but spiritually dead, separated from God. And that's the main idea in death, is this idea of separation, not necessarily uh, non-existence. So hamartia is, is sin. So when we look at this, I'm going to break this down into some subpoints. So that's why I'm starting over with one. When I that should be actually should be a. I just didn't get that one changed. <coughs> this would be some point a under one. In Romans chapter six verses twelve to thirteen, sin's pictured as a ruling tyrant. Now, this fits the idea of uh, a sin nature as opposed to an act of sin. It's pictures as a ruling tyrant whose human subjects um, offer themselves, typo there, whose human subjects offer themselves to be ruled by the monarch, the sin nature. So here we have a picture of a ruling disposition. doesn't fit the idea of an act of sin. So Romans 6, 12 to 13 just can't fit an act of sin. Here are those two verses. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, that just doesn't fit the idea of committing acts of sin. It's the idea of this ruling disposition. Don't let sin reign, dominate, control your mortal body. That's just your physical body. That you should obey its lust. So there we have the sin nature that he talks about as being, as having the lusts as foundational to the sin nature. Verse 13, he goes on to say, and do not present your members, that is your body, don't let your body become an instrument of unrighteousness to sin. See, members of unrighteousness, that relates more to acts of sin, but the word sin relates to the sin nature. So we could translate, don't present your members as instruments of uh, uh, our acts of uh, performing acts of unrighteousness for the sin nature. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members, that is your body and what you do with your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. So Romans 12, 13 doesn't fit the idea of the acts of sin. In Romans 6, 6, uh, 6, 14, there should be a comma, 6, 14, comma, 17 and 20. Paul portrays sin as a master who orders slaves to act however the master demands. 
Thus, sin is viewed as a governing or controlling disposition, not individual acts of sin. Let's look at those verses quickly. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. What does that mean? That means the old man's dead. Crucified means dead. Is your sin nature dead? No. The old man was crucified with him that the body of sin, see, that's, that's the sin nature. The old man's dead for the purpose of, for the end result of doing away with your body of sin. For the, with the result that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For, for, and then in verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. See, it's still talking about sin, not as acts of sin, but as a sin nature. For you're not under law, but under grace. Okay, 617, but God be thanked that through the years you, that though you were, uh, that though you were slaves of sin. See, that's referring to when you were an unbeliever. You were a slave of sin. Now, you didn't know that. You might have been very moral. You might have been one of the most moral people around. You might have been involved in in one of these uh, religious groups that emphasizes a lot of morality and a lot of ritual and is very strong against a lot of different overt sins. And you might not have thought of yourself as a sinner. There are a lot of groups that do. They say, sin who, me? But when we understand what sin is biblically, that it's any act or thought or deed that violates the character of God, we know that we're, we're all sinners. Like Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us. We've turned everyone, and that means everyone has turned. It's just there for that everyone just emphasized. We've turned. That is, every one of us has turned to his own way. No exceptions. Romans 6, so 617, 620 talk about sin in both these passages as a sin nature. Then in Romans 7, 7 through 8, sin produces covetousness. And if we look at the verse in Romans 7, 8, it says, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me. Sin produced in me all manner of evil. So that first sin has to be the sin nature. That's the origin of, of, of sin. Now, we've seen this chart before. I'd like to put it up to remind us. This is a good tool for thinking about doing a little self-analysis and um, seeing how, how things are going with you. We all have lust patterns. Some of you have lust patterns for one thing. Some have lust patterns for another. Some have lust patterns for alcohol. Some have lust patterns for sex. Some have lust patterns for uh, food. Some have lust patterns for being a, a couch potato. Other people have lust patterns for... Gambling. People have, some people have lust patterns for all kinds of material things. We all have lust patterns. That, that's, that's the driver in the sin nature. And it can move us in different directions. Those are the trends. And some people have a majority trend in either one direction, such as asceticism or legalism. Other people have a trend in the other direction. But most of us have major trends and minor trends. Just like when you went to college, you had a major and a minor. Most of us major in one trend or the other, and we minor in the opposite because we are very contradictory. Whatever works for us is going to work because the core of that lust pattern is it's all about me. So when we trend towards asceticism and legalism, it leads to a moral degeneracy. The classic example are, are the Pharisees. They're very moral overtly, but there's an arrogance towards God that they think they can be good enough to qualify for God's 
God's approval. The licentious ones are all the tax collectors and prostitutes and partiers that Jesus would go to. The reason Jesus went with them is because it's a lot easier to convince the licentious crowd that they're sinners than the legalistic crowd. It's very difficult to convince legalistic, arrogant, legalistic people that they're sinners. They really, ha- they, they just don't want to accept that. But the ones that, that, that are licentious, they know they're sinners and they know that they have no standing before God. And so when you offer them the present of salvation, they're, they'll take it because they know they can never earn it. So in a lot of ways, they're easier to deal with. We also produce morality from our sin nature. Morality isn't the same as spirituality. We can do very good things. The, the, the Pharisees, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm not being judgmental, uh, Muslims, these are all religions that focus on individuals trying to get approval from God through the things that they do. And, and they think of themselves as basically moral. I mean, the ones that are, are really trying to do the right things. But that comes from their sin nature because they, they're still spiritually dead. Then we have personal sins that we all commit. But it all comes out of that sin nature. And that's what we're born spiritually dead. This is what controls us from the moment we're born. And so from the time you were born until the time you trusted in Christ, this is the only option. This was the tyrant in your life, and you couldn't do anything that didn't come from your sin nature. I don't care what it was, how good it was, how nice it was, how sweet and glorious it was. It came right out of your nasty, black, corrupt sin nature. So don't fool yourself. Now, that's the sin nature, and it dominated us. Now, the second thing, now, all of that was just under the first point, which dealt with the meaning of sin, that the noun sin in the singular in these three chapters relates to the sin nature. The second point we want to see here is that as Paul depicts the spiritual struggle of the believer with the sin nature, that is, this disposition to sin, He dramatizes it in this passage by personifying it as if it's a person. That's just personification of something that is, uh, that is a non-person that's just a physical thing or an immaterial thing, a non-person. It's just another figure of speech like an anthropomorphism or an anthropopathism or something like that. It's that, that you're taking something abstract and you're trying to communicate to people in such a way that it's going to wake them up and and it's not just going to be sort of an academic treatise that that it, it's going to personify it and dramatize what uh, what this in nature is that it's the master, it's the slave master, it's the slave owner, and that's and you were a slave and I was a slave to the sin nature. Why? Because that was the only thing we could obey, because it wasn't an option prior to salvation. In Romans six nineteen, Paul uses the phrase to clarify this. He says, and I speak in human terms. See, he's just using a figure of speech to help us understand and to dramatize uh, this whole point. Now, in point three, the sin nature is spoken of as sin. That is, as we've already seen, the sin nature. It's spoken of as the body of sin. And it's viewed as either a master, it was your ma- the master before salvation, or a potential master after salvation, while the individual, belie- individual believer or individual person is viewed as either a slave prior to salvation or as a potential slave. What we see here is that 
many every time we sin, now you, you're not conscious of this, but what you have said in your the thinking of your soul is, I'm more comfortable being a slave to the tyranny of the sin nature than I am walking by the Holy Spirit. And every time you sin, every time we get angry, every time we uh, lie or deceive, every time we do we gossip, every time we do anything that is a sin, what we're basically saying in our soul is, I want to be a slave of the sin nature. My, my sin nature, and see, we're all this way. From the time you were born, took that first little gaspy breath when the doctor swatted you on the twat, until you got saved, you lived in the control of sin nature, and you look, that's your comfort zone. That's my comfort zone. We figured out how to make life work for us through our sin nature. Then we got saved, and we have all those bad, bad habits that we have to unlearn, and that's what they are. They're habits, and when we go back to the sin nature, that's our, comfort, that's our soul comfort food. It makes us feel comfortable because we think we're in control and we can handle life that way. And that's the deception of the sin nature. So sin is spoken of as either a master or potential master, and, and we're talked about as slaves. Now, this idea of master and slave is something that we should understand in light of the context of the culture at that particular time. And under Roman law, a master is someone who is in the legal position of authority. And the, the, the slave had to do whatever the master said he had to do. The slave, on the other hand, is an individual who has no individual rights but was legally bound to obey the authority of the master. Now, the imagery that, that, that Paul uses here is that when we got saved, that legal, legally binding authority of the sin nature ended. But we just want to trot back and act like, like that's it. You, know, we, you hear stories every now and then, and I've heard some of these, uh, I've heard this, them related to Jews from the former Soviet Union, from Ukraine, from Russia, who've gone to, gone to Israel, where all of a sudden they have all this freedom, but they're not comfortable. I've heard of uh, Eastern Europeans and Russians who come to the U.S. or Western Europe. Uh, this happened with a lot of East Germans when the wall came down and, and Germany reunited. They didn't know how to handle freedom. They were much more comfortable with some with a government that told them what to do and how to do everything and living in fear because that was their whole frame of reference. They didn't know how to live in a different environment. And that's what happens with a lot of Christians. Rather than studying the Word so they can learn how to live in the new life that we have in Christ, they're more comfortable with all their old habits and all their old sin nature patterns. And so they'd rather run back and let the sin nature control their life because they have a sense that somehow that worked rather than taking the risks to do something different and walk in total dependence on the Holy Spirit like Peter did when he's out walking on the water. If you heard that when you were a kid, you thought, well, that'd be cool. I can walk on the water. That'd be really great. But if you think about that as an adult and you're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and you're stepping out on the boat. You're not just walking out from the shore where for a little while, you know, okay, it's not very deep here. I can get my feet wet. But you're out in the middle, and there's there's big waves. Now, that's that's a totally different issue. It's threatening to trust and ignore what, 
our whole background and experience. But that's what Paul's getting at here. Now, the fourth point is, for the unbeliever, that is a non-Christian, they're born with only one nature. I've already covered most of this, so we'll hit it quickly. They're born with only one nature, the sin nature, that sinful disposition. And, and we're all born that way. That is the controlling factor in our lives. And if you got saved when you were 20 or 30 or 40, it's so much harder. That's why it's so important to, to get the gospel to children and for parents to get that gospel, expose them to the gospel and to the word so that before they're six or seven or eight or nine, they can, they can hear the word. And all that time teaching them the Bible in the house so that when they get saved, there's a frame of reference there for biblical truth. You wait till they're 40, they, it's, it's really hard. It's not impossible. God, the Holy Spirit, can do anything. But it's, it's tough in terms of your own volition. We see allusions to this in Romans 6.6. 6. Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Paul, Paul, you know, this is amazing. Paul thinks that you should quit sinning. You shouldn't be a slave to that sin nature anymore. He's just idealistic, isn't he? Romans 6.16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? When we live on the sin nature, we're just saying, put the shackles on. Oh, I shouldn't use that. That's too politically incorrect right now, isn't it? <laughs> You're that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So, see, you're a slave. You just thought you were free. And it's your choice. Are you going to be a slave to Christ or are you going to be a slave to sin nature? That's the only option. You're never independent. At every nanosecond in our lives, we're choosing to either be a slave to Christ or a slave to the sin nature. We're never just doing what we want to do. In fact, what we want to do is probably the sin nature. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself... Oh, I already covered that. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What that basically means is when you're a slave to sin, there's no righteousness in life. No matter how good you think you are, it's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, all your works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Now, the fifth point, what Paul says, however, is that old man is crucified. Now, what is the old man? Now, there are two basic views on this, and I don't know what you've heard, but I'll probably be correcting you. There are two options. One is that the old man is a synonym for the sin nature, and that's not it. The other is that the old man is a term for everything you were when you were an unregenerate, spiritually dead sinner. And that's the only option it can be. Why? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, so no volunteers. But if I were to ask you, how many of you still have a problem with your sin nature? I bet everybody would raise their hand. But Paul says that the old man was crucified. That means he's dead. Now, he's either dead or he's not, and if you still have a problem with it, he's not dead. But he says the old man is dead. 
So he can't be talking about the sin nature, and I'll show you why as we go through a couple of passages. First of all, the entire context of Romans 6, 1 through 6, 13, rather, 6, 1 to 13, is talking about persons, not dispositions. He's talking about persons, not, he's talking about the entire person, not just some, some disposition. The sin nature may be a disposition, which is what I've said, but his focus all the way through here in Romans chapter 6 is on we as a whole person. We were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we should also walk in newness of life. He's not talking about we as just some disposition or some part of our person. He's talking about the whole person. Second aspect here is in Romans 6, 7, which says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Okay, what, what are you, what's dying? It's the old man. The old man's dead. He who has died is freed from what? The sin nature, freed from the power of the sin nature. But you still have a sin nature, don't you? Now, this comes across because that first phrase, he who has died, is a, an aorist participle in the Greek. And the main verb, has been freed, really doesn't mean has been freed. That's not what it says in the Greek. It doesn't say freed at all. The verb is dikaiao. What do you think that means? Justification. Dikaiao is the verb for to be declared justified. So it should be translated to get it accurate. In New American Standard and New King James both get this wrong. For he who has died has been declared justified in relation to sin. Now that gives you a whole new sense of what that says, doesn't it? Now the, the main verb there is a, is a perfect tense verb indicating something that is an action that's completely over with, it happened in the past, and so you're talking about the present results of this completed past action. So you were justified. That happened at a point in time when you trusted in Christ as your Savior sometime in the past. It's completed. You're talking about current results. So you are justified from sin. He who has died is an aorist tense. Now, this is where you get into interesting Greek grammar. An aorist tense participle, the action of that precedes the action of a perfect tense verb. Aorist tense always it comes before the action of the verb. Present tense is at the same time. Future tense is after the action of the main verb. So what this is saying is the person who has, who has died, that comes after justification logically. But it's talking about being justified from sin, not being free from sin. The person who has died is justified in relationship to sin. It's not talking about that sin nature is not there anymore. What died was the old man. Under C, if this, if this is, <clears throat> if, if the old man is a sin nature, then the literal meaning is that the sin nature, sinful disposition died with Christ. And if that's true, then none of us are saved because we're all still, still sinning. Fourth point, when Paul applies this to the individual in Romans 6.11, he challenges us to reckon ourselves dead to sin. He says, you died, the old man died, now you have to reckon yourselves dead to sin. 
The implication of that is, is that you and I can not reckon ourselves dead to sin, which means we keep on sinning. And if we keep on sinning, then the, then the sin nature is not, not dead, but the old man is dead. These are the two different concepts. In Romans 6, 2 and 6, 11, Paul declares that the believer is dead to sin, but not that sin is dead to the believer. We can still sin. So the old man is dead, but the sin nature is still there. Romans 6, 11 says, Likewise, uh, also uh, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then if the sin nature is dead, the last point there, then we have problems with Romans 7, 14, and 25, which depicts the believer's struggle with sin. Now we're going to go visit Sunday morning, okay? We're going to go back to about mid-May. I put this chart up on the board from Colossians just to get the overview of what's going on from Colossians 2, 11 through Colossians 3, 11. And I just want to hit the high points. He started off at the very beginning, if you remember, talking about that spiritual circumcision, which is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, in him you were spiritually circumcised by putting off. This is what happened in spiritual circumcision. You put off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, by being buried with him in baptism. That's the death of the old man. And I'll show you that because he talks about it coming up. In verse 20, he says, Therefore, if you died, and you did with Christ, you died. The old man died at the instant of salvation. If then you were raised, see, all that terminology there we went through in Colossians 2, went through baptism in the Holy Spirit, ties all this together. For if for you died, he says in Colossians 3, 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So again and again, it's the, a real circumstance. You died. Something died. It's the old man. Not the sin nature. It's still, still there. And you haven't been separated from it either. Therefore, he says, notice he says, you've, you've died. Now he says, put to death. So you died positionally. Something died, but something is still active and needs to be put to death. What died and what needs to be put to death? He says, but now you yourself, in verse 8, he says, you yourselves are to put off all of these. And then in verses 10 to 11, at the very bottom, he says, because you have put on the new man. That's past tense. When did you put on the new man? You put on the new man at the cross. That removed the old man. The old, if the old man is the sin nature, then if you put on the new man at the cross, that means you're sinless. It, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work over in Ephesians 4 either where he uses that terminology. It reads in the English like their exhortations or cha- commandments there in Ephesians 4, which I'll probably get to next week, but they're, they're not. They're, they're uh, infinitives, and they're talking about what we, the truth that we have in Christ, and they're not talking about what we should do. When it says to put off the old man and to put on the new, That's the truth. We put off the old man and we put on the new man at salvation. But we still have this problem with the sin nature. He goes on to say in Colossians 2 that in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit by putting off the body uh, body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then he goes on uh, down to verse 310, put on the new man who's renewed in knowledge according to the image of Christ. 
So all of this is to say that, that there, what's crucified with Christ is the old man. That's the totality of who we were, our whole identity prior to regeneration is, is, is gone. We have a new, new family, a new identity. We have been sealed with the Spirit. We've been given all these spiritual gifts. We're regenerated. We're justified. We're reconciled. All these things in our, we're a totally new person in Christ. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says? The old man's gone. But we still have this hangover. Now, point six, the nature of death. Death is fundamentally a separation. And we're separated from who we... When, when it says the old man was crucified, we're separated from everything we were before we were saved. There, there's this wall that's up there. And what we want to do is we want to go back... I've used this illustration before. It's like somebody who comes over here from, from the old Soviet Union, and they just can't handle the freedom. So they still live like they did when they were behind the wall. But that, they're not that person anymore. They're not living in that environment anymore. But that's their comfort zone. And that's what we do. That old man is gone, but we want to go back there because we're just like the Israelites who want to go back to the leeks and garlics of Egypt. That's what that illustrates. They just wanted to go back into slavery rather than pushing on to freedom. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, which I just quoted, that we're all a new creation. Galatians 6.15, from Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It's not ritual, in other words, but a new creation. We are a new person in Christ. Now I'll come back next time. I'll stop here at 7. But this is the key to understanding Romans 6, is that there's this radical break, and, and Paul isn't saying, he's not shaking his finger at people and saying, oh, you sinned, you lost your salvation, you did this, you did that. But he he's, wants Christians to understand, you can't take a laissez-faire attitude towards your sin nature. Because if you do, it's going to dominate. And there's, there's a battle. But how do we win that battle? Ah, that's the issue. So we'll get there in, in 7 and 8. Father, thank you for this time to study these things, to be challenged uh, by your word in relation to the sin nature, realizing that we're, we're engaged with a battle with this enemy within us that no longer has the right to control but exercises such a, an influence out of habit and out of comfort. And yet we need to learn how, how we're supposed to walk by the Spirit so we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Father, we pray you'll challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen.